Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. And this is KBOO Portland creeping up on 8 a.m. when we will have Positively Revolting, speaking with the Oregon Historical Society and Greg Constantine. At 9 Pacific Undergrounds, Sarah, Tabitha, Matt, and Jake have a roundtable on Asian Pacific Americans in pop culture. At 10, it's film at 11, of course. And 10.30, KBOO's Suzanne Legrand interviews artist, writer, and author Austin Cleon. At 11, a Radio Geekly celebrates its final episode, bringing the collective back together one last time to chat about famous finales in geekdom, as well as their favorite moments from the last three years. All of this is only possible, can only happen with the support of the community, and that is you, my friends. Thank you so much for your support of Community Radio. If you've not yet become a member of the KBOO Foundation, you can remedy that oversight at kboo.fm. Click where it says Donate. And now these important announcements. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Let Your Mind Bloom! Spring Psychic Fair on Sunday, April 7th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Rosewood Initiative in Portland. Let Your Mind Bloom! Spring Psychic Fair features practitioners and healers from many different modalities as well as local vendors, arts and crafts, and a fairy photo booth. Again, that's Let Your Mind Bloom Spring Psychic Fair on Sunday, April 7th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Rosewood Initiative, 16126 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO hosts a monthly film series at the Clinton Street Theater called KBOO at the Clinton. This month, we'll screen the film Legong on Thursday, April 11th at 7 p.m. Legong is a rarely screened 1935 silent movie shot entirely in Bali with a Balinese cast, mixed with a new score by Clubfoot Orchestra and Gamelan Sekarjaya. Again, that's Legong, showing April 11th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Again, this is KBOO Portland. Coming up is Positively Revolting. I mentioned the crucial support of the community, one member of the community that's gotten involved to support KBOO in a way that makes sense for them. I am pleased, honored, as well as contractually obligated to tell you about right now. And that is that KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from the Oregon Symphony's Concert for the Community, Saturday, April 13th, celebrating music of the Americas with music of North, Central, and South America featuring performance by Hill, Hillsborough's Mariachi Una Voz. More information at orsymphony.org. What would you have instead? Uh, ah, no, this is it. <laughs>
And good morning, good morning. Ah, I'm here. We found me. It's always good to be found in the morning. Good morning. This is KBOO Portland, your very own community radio station, and you are attuned to Positively Revolting. I am your host, Ani. This morning, I am honored to be joined by Greg Constantine here in the studio. Uh, He is a documentary photographer who focuses on human rights, injustice, and the lives of the stateless, spending more than a decade documenting uh, stateless communities around the world. He's worked with organizations including Human Rights Watch, UNHCR, Amnesty International, the European Network on Statelessness, and many, many others. His project, The Nowhere People, uh, began in 2011 and has three interconnected books associated with it, Kenya's Nubians Then and Now, Exiled to Nowhere, Burma's Rohingya, and Nowhere People. Greg is in Portland uh, today and through this weekend for a symposium which starts uh, this afternoon and ends Sunday. The symposium is entitled Exiled to Nowhere, a symposium on the Rohingya crisis, and it features and is sort of focused on an exhibit of Greg's work. Welcome to KWU this morning, Greg. It's great. Thanks. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you for the work you do. Uh, For more than a decade, you've been documenting some of the most vulnerable communities around the world documenting people who really have no legal existence, who are invisible uh, to the state and and to really the majority of, of the world around them. And your work humanizes this overwhelming global issue. Um, I understand that there's something close to 12 million people who are stateless in this world, and more than 3 million of those people are children. Uh, over 600,000 people are living stateless uh, in Europe. Uh, and that's not something I, I have often thought about. Mm. Um, your work brings those, those stories forward. And um, in, in hearing some of those stories uh, that, that you've highlighted in your work, I heard several people likening uh, nationality and uh, citizenship and this, that sense of belonging to air that it's so normal uh, so ubiquitous that you only notice it in its lack mm-hmm. you know um, that you you only really become truly aware of it when you have no access to something as basic as nationality can you explain to our listeners what being stateless means mm. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the the loaded question, you know. I mean, I think every single person that I've met over, I mean, when I started the project back in two thousand end of two thousand and five, I mean, really, it's I I wasn't didn't know what to expect, and uh, you know, over twelve years of working on that project, I mean, you know, every single person articulates what citizenship and nationality kind of means to them Uh, changes from one place to the next but i think what is the underlying current to all of that is just this sense of belonging um you know the 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 legal and technical kind of identification of being a citizen from here or being a citizen from there or you have this nationality or that nationality is one thing but it's this it's this like kind of betrayal by the place that you grew up in because most stateless people they've never crossed a border they've never they're not refugees they're stateless in the country that they were born in that their grandparents were born in that their great-grandparents were born in that they identify themselves as being part and parcel of that particular community and whether it's Italy or Burma or Kenya or Kuwait or Iraq or wherever it is Dominican Republic I mean people identify themselves based on how they've been brought up and the communities that they've been intermeshed in over the their family's history and when the state then decides to makes the conscious decision the arbitrary decision to basically extract you from being a part of that particular society it challenges identity it challenges the way that people think about themselves the way that people think about their communities the way that people um add and add value to who they are and what they can contribute in the world. And I think that's probably one of the biggest tragedies of the issue of statelessness is that it challenges incredibly talented, intellectual, caring, you know, people 
about what their worth is like in larger society. And I think that's the biggest thing that I found all throughout all the 12 years of working on the project is, is just that's the biggest tragedy of it all, I think. Well, and because without without that without that nationality, there's uh, no opportunity to have um, actual legal ID. Yeah, and that just sort of uh, starts this huge ball of other yeah. complications. Uh, what what are some of the real issues that stateless people face? Well, I mean, actually, you know, when I think back on your original question, maybe I didn't quite answer it in that sense. I mean, I think the fact is that with, with the shared commonality for people who are stateless, what is it to be stateless in the world today? And that is to where you have no legal documentation. You have, and with that, like you said, comes this domino effect mm -hmm. from being denied a birth certificate, you know, to then being denied access to an education, access to, you know, uh, to a proper employment, to being able to legally rent or own property, to being able to pass on your identity and your uh, status to your children. I mean, statelessness is inherited from one generation to the next. You talk about it being you know? intergenerational, yeah. and that, again, is, is kind of mind-blowing. So yeah. you're born in a country, you have no uh, legal uh entitlement to yeah. to your existence and therefore your children don't either exactly i mean i think this is this is another thing about the issue of statelessness that people don't particularly understand and that is that you know if statelessness isn't isn't kind of tackled and if solutions aren't found to it the numbers exponentially end up getting larger and larger and larger with every single passing year um, because of that very fact that children end up inheriting the statelessness of their parents um, and that throws them outside of all these different kinds of opportunities that we here in the United States or in Canada or in Europe take completely and totally for granted for the most part. You know, I mean, it's having access to, well, in the big scope, it's having access to a future. I mean, really, and I think that's what you see with a lot of stateless kids is that they reach a particular age to where they feel like at least what's been described to me over and over and over again is that it's like they walk up and all of a sudden they're standing on the edge of a cliff that has no bottom to it. And that's their, basically their life and they're stuck. Life is put on pause. Mm. Um, and that's the reality. You, there is a, an interview uh, that you had with a young man, a 23 year old man who was uh, in Italy, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, from the Roma. And I believe uh, his family was from Bosnia mm -hmm. and he is growing up stateless in Italy and, and reflecting on his life and, and his lack of, of belonging. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a piece in um, a short video that you have online that I found particularly moving uh, just in hearing him uh, talk about how he feels Italian. Yeah. He was he was born there. He's he's lived there his whole life. He he has the tastes and flaws yeah, and and absolutely. and feels just like anyone else uh, any other young man in Italy, but he has no legal existence yeah yeah i mean you find that i mean i found that with at least with the work that i did in europe i mean you know his story is 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 the exact same story as a lot of other people that i met across europe i mean that it's you're not so that stateless people in europe are not so much parts of entire communities like you have the rohingya in asia or in parts in africa but there's these individual cases that you know uh for any particular, for any num a number of different reasons, you find yourself thrown out of the, you know, having rights. Yeah. And, and I think those individuals like that young man, they feel actually more isolated than people do and lonely and desolate than people do if they're part of a larger community that all have the same status and for him it, yeah I mean you know it's the the fact is, is that he's lived in Italy his whole entire life and he doesn't understand why he can't be a part of that particular community mm -hmm. and along with that comes even though he might have friends who are all Italian who have Italian citizenship um, there's always going to be somebody asking that question so where are you from and then he has to basically defend himself about who he is to people who ask that very, very simple question that we're asked all the time. Mm -hmm. And that can become incredibly exhausting, incredibly demoralizing. Um, and over time, that ends up just really wearing people down in terms of who they feel they are and the confidence that they have in themselves.
in so one one of the things that I was uh, that I really learned in uh, looking into this issue, uh, prepping for this interview, I had no idea there were so many ways that mm. one could become stateless. Uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, for example, yeah. suddenly uh, the the country you were born in doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does how does that actually what are, what are the, the dynamics of that? Well, I mean, you know, I think that there's, I mean, this is the reason why one of that project just kept going and going and going is that there's no clear cut reason right. why people become stateless. And I tried to, I wanted to collect this, I wanted to create this collective body of work that tried to at least represent a number of different reasons why people become stateless. And if you look at, you know, Europe in particular with the breakup of the Soviet Union, with the breakup of, of ex former Yugoslavia, um, you know, you have these creation of new states and each one of them comes with their prejudices and their stereotypes and their political leanings. And um, even though you might have been born in Serbia and have lived there all your life, the creation of that new state and the government's that package of discrimination that comes in the legacy, I guess you could say, of discrimination that comes in with all that ends up resulting in people being considered others. Um, and that right there. And I think all the years that I worked on that project, the probably the leading reason, the, the one thing that was shared amongst almost all the different places that I went to was the reason for people being stateless and becoming stateless was intolerance, racism, and discrimination. Mm-hmm. I mean, set aside all the, the complex legal elements of things, but the fact is the people becoming stateless in, in, in ex-Yugoslavia, it might have been the breakup of the state, but what really fueled and continues to fuel that is racism, discrimination, and intolerance. Um, you find that everywhere, everywhere. I want to remind people you are listening to KBOO, your community radio station. I'm Ani. My guest this morning on Positively Revolting is Greg Constantine. He's a documentary photographer, and he is here in Portland uh, to be a part of the symposium that is starting today, going through this weekend. The symposium is called Exiled to Nowhere, a symposium on the Rohingya crisis. Uh, most of the sessions are at the Oregon Historical Society. That's at 1200 Southwest Park Avenue. And uh, there are uh, sessions today, tomorrow, and Sunday. And I believe Sunday session is at Portland State University. Um, the schedule is online. You can find that uh, at worldoregon.org. Uh, you can also uh, find it, I have to say, on the Positively Revolting page uh, on KBOO's website because I did copy that schedule and put it there easy for listeners to find. Uh, if you're not having a quick note to jot this morning, uh, go to our page and see uh, some of the sessions that are happening. And it is, again, such an important topic. Uh, it's a topic that many people find overwhelming. If you would like to call in and participate in this conversation, this is an opportunity for you to talk about this incredibly important subject. Uh, please do call 503-231-8187, the number to call to join us this morning on Talk Radio. also want to encourage you to follow along uh, Positively Revolting throughout the week. You can find us on Twitter at Positive Revolt. Or on Facebook, you can like our page, Positively Revolting. There's uh, all the ways you can contact us and uh, be in touch because there's a lot of work to do to make this world a better place. Um, 503-231-8187, the number to call. Greg, how did you start this path? What, what got you inspired to start doing this particular documentation uh, there in 2004-2005? I, you know, I was, uh, the, one of the first stories that I worked on as a photographer was that I was, I did a project um, kind of exploring and exposing the lives of North Korean refugees that had seeked escaped North Korea and were seeking asylum in Southeast Asia. And a lot of the people that I met were women who were traveling with young kids. And a lot of those young children had no form of documentation whatsoever. They didn't have passports. They didn't have birth certificates. They didn't have anything. And it just started making me ask questions about what the futures of these kids would be. And one thing led to another. And um, 
someone from one of the, uh, you know, large humanitarian and refugee organizations in Washington, D.C., Maureen Lynch said, you know, you've just stumbled across a subject that nobody is really paying any attention to, and that is statelessness. And I just, it just piqued my curiosity. And one thing led to another, and I knew that I wanted to dive into another project, and I didn't intend for it to be 12 years, but um, I wanted to create a photo essay on stateless communities in Asia. And really, it just kind of ballooned from there. I mean, I think, you know, one of the first communities that I started photographing was, was the Rohingya in, from Myanmar. And that turned into, you know, now I'm now into my 13th year of photographing that community. And because I see the importance not only of their story, but, you know, statelessness rests still at the center of so much of their plight. Um, and, you know, I realized over the first couple of years that I was on to something with this subject and this issue. And again, nobody was really still continued to spend any time on it. Um, and for me, it was... You know, statelessness is so much re is, is really reflective of so many different things that are vital to the way that we live today. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it touches on so many key elements from identity to the to belonging to borders to what are human rights today to, you know, the power of the state. I mean, I think really is something that ended up driving me for the past for the last five years of that project was just the arbitrary power of the state to be able to say who belongs and who doesn't. Um, and even though stateless people, for the most part, are invisible to a lot of people in the world, the one the one entity that they're not invisible to is the state because the state is actually making the conscious decision to deny them inclusion. Um, and so because of that, I think just as a photographer and journalist, it's our kind of responsibility to help, you know, touch on these things and highlight them and try to understand them. And, and more than that, try to engage people with things to, with the work. Let's let's look at the Rohingya uh, for for a moment. The Rohingya are a minority Muslim community in Myanmar, mm -hmm. and they uh, have just not been recognized. They are considered, Ill, uh, you know, immigrants without documentation uh, in the country uh, that they have lived in for a couple of centuries. Yeah, um, and this is. When did this start in, in Burma? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it all pretty much, I mean, a lot of their struggles probably started in 1962. I mean, with the, you know, the military, the military coup, coup and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, up and be, up until then, you know, when Burma claimed its independence in 46 or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, the Rohingya were a very, I mean, were very much part of the M Myanmar society of Burma mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had, there were members, they had people who were members of parliament. They carried the same entire, they say, carried the same documentation as other people all across the country from all the different other ethnic communities. They were businessmen. They traveled freely. They, you know, they played a very important part. I mean, they had members of their community help influence and, and, and draft part of the constitution mm -hmm. of Burma. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in that sense, the, the community has been, were citizens just like everybody else. But then I think, you know, come 1962, you've seen ever since then this legacy of almost 60 years worth of discrimination and intolerance and racism and exclusion um, for any number of different reasons. But I think what rests at the heart is um, that this community has been considered others, um, that the, you know, for any, for a variety of other different reasons, um, they've been excluded from being a part of the country. They've been demonized by politicians, um, and by the military, um, and local communities. Um, and as a result of that kind of legacy over decades of that, you see what's happened just in the past couple, just in the last two years. I mean, I think it would, the, you know, the Rohingya community is, um, has lived in that area of Burma for centuries. I mean, it's not just generations. It goes deeper than that. I mean, they, they've always been there. Um, and I think what's happened is that the, the, the military in Burma are, are quite sinister for any number of different reasons. And they have, uh, I think, the extreme 
um, side of the decisions that's made by the Burmese military over all these years is you have the example of what's happened to the Rohingya. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have been so, um, you know, back in the 90s, back in the 90s when I first uh, learned about the plight of Aung San Suu Kyi and mm-hmm. the democracy movement in Burma uh, and uh, read about the atrocities that the Slork committed mm-hmm. uh, with the forced labor camps and and that was a that was a struggle that I I threw myself into uh, in what I consider a pretty you know small way you know yeah. I I participated in boycotts I I you know I spoke out a, a, a lot and tried to educate others and but it always it's uh, a little removed because here we are in the Northwest you know yeah. not uh, not all that feeling globally connected. And then to uh, feel the elation of wow, we there was there was this this uh, watershed moment, democracy movement went out, and then to see only a few years later that there's still so much to do, and mm-hmm. there are these atrocities mm-hmm. that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you not lose heart yeah. uh, when you are somebody who is actually eyewitness? to the horrors of mass atrocities and genocide. I think it just basically just comes down to the importance of the story and the respect that I have for the people that I photograph. I mean, and the people that I've met. I mean, you know, the Rohingya is, even though a lot of people, the public, etc., have come into the Rohingya story relatively new, their, their point of departure for the Rohingya story is 2017 for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I've been documenting that community since 2006. I mean, and it shows the fact is, is that this is not something that is new. This is not a new story. The scope and scale of it might be at a proportion that is, is very new. But the reality of it is, is that the, everything that's happened to the Rohingya has been going on and on and on for a long time. And the international community has really not paid too much attention to it, hasn't really cared too much about it. Um, and, and that's created the situation that we're in today. I think over all of those years of meeting with Rohingya and listening to their stories and just being so completely and totally amazed that they can find the constitution to just keep going on year after year after year. I mean, I think that's the thing that has not allowed me to lose heart with the story because I just feel it's so important to continue to keep documenting. Uh, it's, uh, again, amazing work, and uh, and I thank you. 503-231-8187 is the number to call, just like Camilo did. Good morning, Camilo. You're on the air. Hello, Camilo. There hasn't been a significant international concern. So I'm thinking that uh, Buddhism is an international organization, I think that I have seen at least once a statement by Buddhist organization, but I wonder if it wouldn't do any good for all of us who participate in sanghas throughout the world, but specifically here in Portland now, to speak to our sanghas and ask them to sort of pass up the uh, line of their lineage to their international organizations to express some united Buddhist sentiment, considering the fact that Buddhism is a belief, a philosophy that really doesn't allow for the kinds of discrimination that uh, the state uh, endorses in this case. Uh, as uh, so What I'm hearing you say is you're making sort of a suggestion to other Buddhists uh, to, uh, to try to work within your sanghas to uh, effect change. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking your your guess whether or not that that would be a good strategy for individual members of sanghas to follow. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest with you, I think that there's. I mean, thanks for your for calling in. I mean, I think that there's a number of different things to 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 address with your question. I mean, the one thing is is that um, there's been like an enormous 
international response to what's happening to the Rohingya. It's actually been, I mean, no more time, no other time has there been more attention, more political engagement, more international kind of discussion about what hap- what's happening in terms of the Rohingya when it comes politically, when it comes to human rights organizations, the legal community and everything. I mean, it's, it's absolutely enormous. It always can be more. But the, the, I think the big, the big challenge is how does that then translate into justice being served and change being made and this community being able to go back to the place that they call home and live peacefully um, and go from there. That all pretty much rests on the shoulders of the Burmese military in so many different ways. Um, I, it, and I think that everybody asks their question, you know, what can we do? And I think what you've just said is one vehicle that people in faraway places removed from Burma can, act, can actually do. How that ends up translating into getting into the ears and eyes and influencing people, that, that very powerful military in, in Burma that still basically holds an iron grip on the country, um, that's to be told. Um, to anyone's guess. But I do feel that what you've just said is one way that people can actually take action and, and can participate in trying to, to spark some kind of change. Thank you very much. I have my Shanga and recommend that other people do likewise. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Camillo. Take care. And, uh, and let's go ahead and, well, I mean, it, just to, to, to look at that for just a moment, it seems like to leave no stone unturned, right? Yeah. To try all avenues to affect change from wherever we are, whatever connections we think we might have or can use, uh, seems imperative. Sure. You know, just as uh, human beings on this planet. Um, let's go ahead and talk to Pear. Good morning, Pear. You are on the air. Hey, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there's one part of this that uh, doesn't get. Uh, talked about much you go back to the late 1800s when there really was no burma you know it was all part of the british empire and the brits moved in uh, uh starting in the late 1800s they moved in cheap labor from uh from uh bengal into the area and the population sort of in 40 years the uh population of these uh, people sort of in- tripled and this is a, uh, you know, the the British have done the same kind of thing. They did the same kind of thing in what was then Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, where they moved Tamils from India into uh, into Ceylon. Uh, it's very similar to what they did in Ireland. They moved, uh, the British Empire moved in uh, Scottish Protestants into Ireland. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how to undo, you hear you can't undo that, but... I, I think it should be recognized what kind of uh, problems empires cause when they uh, when they just kind of move people from one place to another for their own convenience and for their for their own profit because that's what it was it was, it was cheap labor and uh, uh, so I, I think that should be recognized. I, I mean, I think that's a I think it's a good point, but at the same time, I I I I, I mean, I have to kind of counter what you said i mean that right there is the narrative that the burmese military has been using all of these last decades yeah, to it justify happens to be true. Oh, it happens to be true i i there's no doubt that during british colonial time that there was a movement of people um from south asia into burma but the reality of it is is that this particular community has existed there well beyond well before uh you know the british rule in in burma and I also think that the the one thing that that it gets, I mean, the one thing that gets overshadowed, or one of the things that gets overshadowed here, is that, you know, this is a, this is not particularly a story that has to where the centerpiece is migration. This is a story that really is rooted in blatant human rights abuse and the the power of the state. I mean, I think that if we want to talk about colonialism, I think that what we really also need to look at is that we can look back to colonialism in 1800 with the British. But if you look post-independence, 
of Burma, what's happening is that you have an internal internal colonization that's taking place in that country by the majority ethnic community in that country and basically imposing itself and occupying um, places all over the country. Rakhine, the state where the where the Rohingya are, are, have lived, is a perfect example. I mean, this is the, the, the Burmese state, the military, basically occupying and colonizing a state um, with its own majority, the Bamar, you know, ethnic community and infiltrating in so many different ways and injecting that community into a state uh, for any number of different reasons. So I think, you know, if we're going to be talking about colonialism in that sense or imperialism or whatever you want to say, the fact is, is there that's happening inside the country by the generals um, in that country right now and has been for the past 50 years. Um, and so I think that to talk about you know, colonialism back in the 1800s or back that far, um, I think it's what we really have to look at. It's what's happening internally in the country over the past 50 years by by the military and by a dominant ethnic community, um, you know, and, and, it's, and its quest for dominance in a country. Well, I'm just saying that to get a total picture, you need to talk about it. It may not be the only thing to talk about, that's for sure, but it needs to be recognized and dealt with in one way or another. And, uh, you know, at the very least, at the very least, the, uh, the British Empire can stop acting uh, like, uh, you know, that they are so enlightened and they are sort of, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it has to be recognized, if nothing else. I agree, I agree with you on that. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Fair. Thanks. 503-231-8187, the number to call. Uh, to join us on the air this morning in conversation. I'm Ani. Um, I'm here with Greg Constantine. Greg is a documentary photographer, uh, and he is uh, his work is centered uh, in the symposium that is starting today, Exiled to Nowhere, a symposium on the Rohingya crisis. Uh, most of those sessions take place at the Oregon Historical Society. And uh, and that is today through this weekend. Greg, you are on a panel today at noon, mm-hmm. uh, bearing witness, documenting genocide and mass atrocities. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what that panel is? Give people a little uh, uh, idea about what's coming up at, in the symposium. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really exciting panel. I mean, I'm really looking forward to being a part of it. Um, it's basically myself and three other photographers um, who have all been in in their own way documenting the Rohingya crisis um, and what's happening to the Rohingya. I mean, there's myself, there's Andrew Stanbridge, there's Jen Lomanson, and there's uh, uh, John Rudolph. Um, the four of us have all kind of taken different approaches towards um, towards uh, documenting the Rohingya um, in our own kind of way. Um, you know, you have uh, uh, people between the four of us, you have an international approach of us documenting what's happening in Burma. You also have um, within the four of us documenting what's actually happening here to the Rohingya community here in Portland, which is roughly about a thousand people from the Rohingya community here living in who have been recognized as refugees and resettled and are living here in the Portland area. Um, and how documenting the impact of of what has been happening over in Asia to the community here, how they're um, coping with uh, the knowledge of family being displaced and atrocities happening to family who are still over in in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. So between the four of us, I think it's it's a really it, it's going to kind of tackle this subject matter from a number of different kind of perspectives and uh, um, different styles and different philosophies about photography and what it can do and why we do the work that we do. Um, and I think it's just going to be a really great uh, panel that I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of that with these other colleagues of mine. A little bit ago, you started mentioning uh, that you have started documenting the Rohingya. You've been documenting them for 12 years mm-hmm. or more now. And I wanted to ask you what you, I mean, the idea of staying with um, a particular community of, of doing this kind of long-term documentation, mm-hmm. uh, what changes have you seen uh, within this community as uh, their situation, uh, you know, uh, becomes ever more marginalized? What yeah. have What have you seen in that? 
trajectory? Um, you know, I think that with this particular, over all these years of photographing them, you see, I mean, the one thing again, that remains constant is that it's this tenacity, determination, resourcefulness of this community to be able to find ways to continue to survive based on, you know, all the different things that are thrown at them. I mean, that just hasn't, that hasn't changed. It's, it's astonishing to me. Um, so it's, I mean, even though over these years, so many different terrible things have happened to this community and, and, and continue to keep happening. The fact is that I think that one of the reasons why I continue to keep photographing and trying to dig deeper and to try to see what's happening and from different perspectives is also a way to just celebrate this community and the individuals in this community capacity to be able to, to keep going. I mean, in so many ways they're, I mean, there's a heroic element of the Rohingya community that people that gets lost in, in the covering of all the suffering of this particular community. And that's something that I think really needs to be continued to be highlighted is the sheer tenacity and ability of this community to keep, to keep going year in and year out, to be separated from their families by oceans because you know a fa they're being resettled to constantly being displaced and thrown out of their country or being moved to still having family back in Burma who are going through things that a lot of people right now don't even know what's going on um, so for me it's just this real investment in in trying to continue to keep doing this and I feel like I'm in this really privileged you know position of being one of the only few photographers that's really covered it for a long period of time to where you can look at work from 2006 and compare it to now 2018 2019 um, and when you put that together again I think it creates this really this really strong representation of this legacy of what's happening to this community and not just something that starts with this awful event in 2017 mm -hmm. i think people need to, to to really appreciate i think what's happened to the rohingya community people have to look back at the legacy of what has brought it to where it is right now um and that's my own subjective kind of reasons for why i keep doing it you've worked with uh the international state crime initiative mm -hmm. can you talk about your work with what what is that body and and what is your work there the, the the state crime initiative is out of Queen Mary University of London. Um, it's a like a it's a, a research wing uh, that has been doing just such dynamic work uh, for many years now, led by Penny Green um, and Tom McManus and several other colleagues there. And they really look into things in a very thorough kind of way. And back in 2012, when a wave of violence kind of broke across Rakhine State in Burma against the Rohingya, um, which as a result ended up, you know, emptying entire cities of the Rohingya community and placing them in what is now today, I mean, people would say internment camps, but they're really kind of modern day concentration camps where they're isolated and segregated. You know, the state crime initiatives look at why that happened. What were the stages of that? I mean, I think it's, and then to be able as a photographer to collaborate with, with them to show uh, through visually um, something that can complement the, the research that they're doing and the investigations that they're doing um, was a really great marriage of, of, of the visual form with, with what they're doing. Um, and it led to, you know, they put out two really groundbreaking reports, uh, one in 2015 and another one last year that really look deep into kind of the root causes of what's been happening to the Rohingya, but also places it within the genocidal kind of framework. It shows that, that what's happened to the Rohingya is, is not some spontaneous event, that it was actually something where there was, it's part of a long-term process that has been put out that you can then compare and contrast with other genocides around the world historically. Um, and yeah, their work is really amazing. And it was just a real, uh, it was amazing experience being able to collaborate with them on exhibitions and stuff. And I still have a really great relationship with them. So let's go ahead and uh, take one of our callers. Good morning, Barry, you are on the air. Hi, good morning. Yeah. Um, I guess the gentleman's name is, uh, Greg. That I'm talking yes. to. Hi. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Um, this reminds me of, um, 
of a friend of mine that I have back in Hawaii who is a linguistics professor who had done his dissertation on uh, a nomadic island that used to live on boats. And, um, you know, they, I think the last time he was over there, um, they had moved up into Burma area, a lot of them, and a lot of them had kind of moved on the shore, I guess, and they're off, they've been, you know, chased out of their areas and stuff. I don't know if it has a whole lot to do with the human rights uh, issues that you're talking with, but um, if you ever need help, I guess, in, in um, investigating or whatever, or, <laughs> or, or as linguistics in that area, um, he could probably, you know, be of assistance to you sometime. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, I, in talking about the International State Crime Initiative, you're mentioning uh, that there is a multidisciplinary, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm sure linguistics, you know, can be a part of that. Obviously, the visual documentation, uh, I'm sure historians, uh, it takes so many perspectives coming together to try to really get. Um, an accurate idea. Yeah, absolutely. Of what's going on with the people. Absolutely. I think th- I think that you know when you're when you're looking at subject matter like this, w- the Rohingya or other situations around the world, the f- the fact is, is that I don't know. I mean, I kind of take on this philosophy that the reason why I'm doing is not to just be feeding images into the traditional news cycle. I mean, you know, there's so much more than that. I mean, it's it's really about trying to challenge people to rethink different big concepts it's really challenging people to to take a deeper look into uh into some of these things that fall that that burst into the news cycle and then disappear a week later um you know the rohingya fortunately has stayed in the news cycle for the most part internationally um maybe not here in the united states but it has internationally to an extent um and and i've always found that trying to collaborate and 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 see where photography can can be inserted into some of these really dynamic discussions whether it's academic research or whether it's within the legal community or the human rights community um i mean that's where i really try to spend a lot of my energy trying to find that that the work gets in there and and also it it, it helps inform me in terms of how I go about the work. I mean, some of the things that I've learned from people at the state crime and international state crime initiative or, or, you know, uh, lawyers and stuff have all been the same thing. And to touch on, I think you bring up a really good point about linguistics and, and it may not be directly related to, to, to what you mentioned, but you know, when it comes to statelessness, I mean, there's language is one of the reasons is, is one reason why people are othered around the world. You know, I mean, uh-huh. you, you you look at linguistics and I mean, you know, you look at different countries around the world where you find stateless communities. And one of the reasons why they are identified as not being in quote unquote indigenous to a particular place is because they don't speak the language of the majority. Um, and that's I've seen that in several cases around the world. So I think it's a really good question. But thank you very much. Thanks, yeah, Barry, okay. for your call. Well, if um, you ever wanted to get in touch with him his name is uh, Mike Larish and he's in the Hilo branch of University of Hawaii okay thanks so much thanks very much Barry bye bye and uh, let's go ahead and talk to Sean in Corvallis good morning Sean you're on the air good morning you guys Greg thanks a lot for your great work Um, it's it's ironic timing to turn you on and hear this talk about I didn't know this was going on until I just happened to read about it find out about it last night so um just a couple of brief comments. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, Sebastião Salgado is probably one of my most favorite and well-known mm-hmm. uh, photo documentary documentarians. And I don't know if he influenced you at all, but uh, and he may I'm sure he's interested in the, in this as well. But I think of his first book, Migrations, mm-hmm. and his uh, documentary called Salt of the Earth yep. that, that really ties into things like this. Um, but I wanted to add, you know, I just want to say as far as uh, 
Pierre's comment when he called in a few moments ago about the history, not to go on about that, but, you know, it does play an important part, and I just want to bring it more to current times in terms of the British. You know, they weren't out of there until uh, the, the late 40s. They gave up a lot of their so-called colonial properties, and, you know, the U.S. took over a lot of them. And In comparison, I see what's happening in Burma in the same way of what's been happening in Israel and Palestine. And, you know, they end up giving up these these properties, so to speak, but they end up turning it over knowing what they're going to create and also favoring one side over the other. And I see this as no different of what's going on in Burma, and I was wondering what your feelings are around that. Um, and last point is, and I'll take the answers off the air because I know other people are probably calling, but... You know, a lot of times discussion over these kinds of things goes on between, well, one side's doing one thing to the other and so forth. But a lot what doesn't get mentioned until a lot later sometimes, if at all, is why is it so important to the military to hold on to this and what are the resources they really want? Is it the land? Is it minerals? Is it oil? Are there drugs coming through? What exactly are the reasons that you know of that why this is why they're just being treated like this and why this is going on so long. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for your questions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of address them as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, Salgado has definitely been an influence on me, just as probably a lot, almost, you know, almost any photographer that's doing work like this uh, cannot, you know, they, I'm sure that there's some part of influence of him um, and what we do. And I think for me, I mean, Salgado is one of the things that has always uh, influenced me with him is that his it's it's his dedication to these long-term projects and being able to um, uh, make them work one way or another um, he, he, he worked on those projects at a, at a bit of a different time than, than me in my career and the photographers who are working today um, but I think that just the fact that he was able to conceptualize large projects like that and stick with them for such a long period of time and find the fuel to be able to do them um, that's the thing that has always really inspired me um, about him I think to, to go to your second question I mean I think that you know what you see with what's what's happening in 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 Myanmar um you know the 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 military at least I'll, I'll talk about Rakhine I mean the military over decades now has found a way to basically inject itself and and uh, an ethnic majority into disrupting the the ethnic makeup of uh, that particular state and as well as other places uh, in in Burma. Um, you know, there's no there's no hidden secret about you know the creation of model villages uh, where people are brought in from other parts of the country and and placed in to disrupt the 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 makeup of the of in the dynamics between the Rohingya community and the local Rakhine Buddhist community. I mean, so what we have to also recognize is that there's a, you know, there's a Rakhine Buddhist community that lives in in that particular state that has lived there for a long time as well. And the fact is that the military has always used this tactic of disrupting dynamics in a very, very effective way. Um, and in doing that, it causes instability that then ends up feeding into the reason and justification for why they have to be there. And the story goes on and on and on. I think that that's one of the things that definitely continues to keep happening in, in Rakhine State. Um, and until that kind of stops, you're always going to find instability in that state. Um, and then the very last kind of question that you mentioned um, uh, that had to deal with, um, really sorry. Uh, yeah, and, you it. know, that, that, that thread left me as well. We are running out of time, though. We have, let's go ahead and sneak Ellen in. And then that let's mention uh, the, um, yeah, thanks, Sean, very much for that call. Let's sneak Ellen in and then let's uh, talk one more time about the symposium this weekend. Good morning, Ellen. You are on the air. Good morning, Ani. Um, I'm sorry if this got answered at the beginning. I, w I missed the beginning, but I wondered if somebody can't make it to the seminar this weekend, is there a photography exhibit of this at the Historical Society? Can we? I'm so glad go you asked. And, see? <laughs> and I'll, that, I'll get off. I'll get off the phone and let you in on there. Thank you, Ellen. That was exactly where I wanted to to end this. Um, in in talking about the events this weekend, your work is going to be on display. 
<clears throat> but it is actually going to be up through April 11th, so yep. it's up for a week. Yep. Um, <coughs> excuse me again. And that is at the Oregon Historical Society uh, starting uh, today, and it is up through April 11th. Up through April 11th at the Historical Society, and then the actual, and that's where the symposium is taking place. Um, and then <coughs> the exhibition is actually after the symposium. Uh, the exhibition is then moved and will be on show at the Jewish Museum until the end of May. So you'll be able to see it there as well. Um, but the focus for this so weekend, still in the area, yeah, still in the area. Um, but the focus for this weekend is the symposium where there'll be a number of different really exciting panels. Uh, well, there's one panel today. Tomorrow, there'll be three panels that all talk about um, genocide that talk about uh, uh, uh goes into Sunday's panel which talks about well there's also genocide the legal elements of of the Rohingya and what kind of pathways there are on the legal side of to try to ch create change for the Rohingya community and what's happening and then on Sunday there's a really exciting panel at uh, uh, Portland State University that's all about um, women and the violence against women um, I think not only with the Rohingya community but other examples as well and that is uh, going to be Sunday at 2 o'clock uh, at the uh, PSU Smith's Memorial Center, room 333. Uh, so I'm just going to run down this list of uh, times and uh, titles for the different panels. Uh, today, noon, Bearing Witness, Documenting Genocide and Mass Atrocities. Uh, Greg talked about his involvement in that panel, along with other photographers, uh, Andrew Stanbridge, Jim, <coughs> excuse me, Jim Lomason, uh, John Rudolph, and Elizabeth Marin. Tomorrow at noon, Stories of Survival, a conversation on genocide, past and present. <coughs> this is where I just have to level with you. Those pretty pink trees, they, they really are having their way with me this morning. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, Saturday, uh, also tomorrow, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, an in-depth discussion about the Rohingya crisis. And uh, at 4 o'clock, uh, the Path to Justice examining the legal challenges of the Rohingya crisis, uh, which Greg had just mentioned. Um, and then on Sunday, the sexual and gender-based violence. You can find out uh, more information about this on the World Oregon site. Uh, also, I have uh, posted a link on the Positively Revolting page on Facebook. You can also see the, the schedule on our uh, program page here on KBU. We have just like two minutes left, Greg. Yeah. Um, what, what do you say to people who want to make a difference, who mm. feel like, you know, uh, it is important that everyone does something, but here we are in a faraway place feeling a little isolated and like we don't have any ability to affect change. Yeah. What, what do you say to, to Um, I think there's, there's a number of things that people can do. I mean, you know, it can go from trying to be engaged with, uh, with the Rohingya community here in Portland, because like I said, there's a pretty big dynamic, uh, community here. Um, that's one thing that can be done. Um, you know, the other thing is that, uh, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, you, there's some, uh, members of Congress that are quite active when it comes to Burma and human rights in the country and what's happened with the Rohingya. And, and you can always, you know, call up, send letters, try to influence those particular uh, members of, of, of Congress here um, because they're ultimately the ones who are helping to shape U.S. policy towards Myanmar. Um, and the U.S.'s response or support towards Rohingya um, and what's happening on the bigger picture of refugee resettlement and, and what U.S. and actually in international policy is towards what's happened with this atrocity. So there's a number of different things that people can actually end up doing. And, I mean, the biggest thing is just stay informed, you know. I mean, really, that's the biggest thing, I think. Greg Constantine, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us this morning on Positively Revolting. Thanks so so much. Real real happy to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. Take care. And we will be back next week, Positively Revolting. As ever, we hope you are too.
KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Personnel Committee will meet on the second Monday of each month at 6 p.m. KBU Community Radio starts our spring membership drive starting April 8th. And before that, we'd love to hear from you directly about why you support KBU. My name is Mo, a KBU volunteer, and I support KBU because I grew up with KBU. It's part of my life, and I feel having a community outlet like KBU is so important because it creates a more vibrant community and a place where different ideas are not only heard but honored. Why do you support KBU? Call us and let us know at 503-231-8032, extension 302, to leave a voicemail or tag us with your support on your social media posts. And thank you for supporting KBU.